0: And I'm thankful for those of you who said it because I would have said it if you hadn't have said it because that's what you think about when you think about Job. I want you to think about something else about Job. Blameless. Job enjoyed a testimony of blameless behavior. Look at chapter 1 and the way the book begins. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. Now, this is the first verse of a long book. Whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Whose opinion? That was his testimony. That's what he was known for. That's who he was. Look at verse 8. You remember Satan comes to him, comes to the Lord, and he's been roaming about the earth, walking around in it. Verse 7, verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? In other words, out of all the people on the planet, have you looked at my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. Did you hear that? That's God talking about a man and saying, of all the men on the earth, there's no one like him. Why is he unique? Because he is, as verse 1 said, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I want to begin this morning with what I'm going to call a blameless, upright This pleases God behavior. Because our verses back in James are going to take us to a space that says, this is pure and undefiled religion. When you visit orphans and widows, when you care for those who can't care for themselves, when you provide help to someone who has no help in the ways that God would have provided through fathers and husbands. This is pure and undefiled religion. It's when you visit the vulnerable, when you help the helpless, and when you stay unstained or unspotted from the world. This morning we're going to continue with real religion, the walk of real worship, not the saying of it, but the validating of it, because that's what James is. The validation of real religion, real faith. You can be deceived if you don't bridle your tongue. Your religion is what? Worthless. And when I use religion, I don't particularly use the word religion a lot. People say, are you a religious person? I don't particularly like the term because it tends to look at the outward things. But in the book of James, it's a reference to the inward God-fearing desire to honor the one who is honorable. It is a true worshiper. Job, by God's estimate, is the best worshiper on the planet. What kind of behavior validates that kind of esteem, honor, assessment? Turn back with me to Job chapter 31, because I want you to know Job beyond the fact that he navigated suffering. He honored the Lord in suffering, he grew in that suffering, he lost a lot, he was blessed a lot in the end, but during his journey he had some buddies and he had some folks show up in an effort to support him and in fact challenged him and he in turn defended himself. In essence, their claim was, there must be something wrong with you, look at your life. You've lost your children, you've lost your assets, you've lost your health. Something is not compatible with your claim. Something's wrong. And Job defends himself, and maybe I could say it this way What are the garments of being truly spiritual, a true worshiper, truly religious, in the right kind of way? Spurgeon said the garments of true religion are charity. And purity. purity and charity are the garments of a true believer, not the trappings and the robes of the liturgically religious, not physical garments, not religious speak, not dressed in a suit, not robed, but the garments of a Christian, a true Christian. Our charity and purity, purity and charity. Listen to Job as he asserts by way of testimony, somewhat of a defense, if you will, to those who were challenging him. Chapter 31, listen to the characteristics that define this blameless life that God brags about. This pure and undefiled worshiper says this, verse 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I've resolved by way of conviction. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Implication, lustfully. He's a married man. And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does He not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has fastened or hastened after deceit, let God weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. Now, listen to his description. I have convictions that relate to personal purity, my morality. And if God's going to assess me, here's my assessment of myself. And he doesn't know why he is enduring what he's enduring, but he's saying it is not because of a lack of integrity. Verse 7, if my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes. Now that has to do with the desire for fleshly things or material things. If I'm chasing carnal things or material things, if my heart has followed my eyes. Now watch verse 7, or if any spot has stuck to my hand. I've done something unclean, inappropriate. Let me sow, verse 8, chapter 31. Let me sow and another eat. Let my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. And it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes from a Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. I'm a moral man. I'm an honorable man. I'm a pure man. My blameless testimony from the mouth of God is reflected in the integrity of my morality. And if it were not so, there ought to be consequences. Because God is just in that way. Verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire, or I have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it, in other words, if I've not been as a, as a man sensitive to the needs of those in need, the poor, the widow, the orphan, listen, my testimony is, verse 18, but from my youth he, the orphan, grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guarded her. I provided needs and desires, support and help, provision, instruction, mentoring, guidance from the time I was young. Verse 19, if I had seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he's not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan... Because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket. Now look up for just a minute. I have influence. If I have failed to leverage my significant influence, you know, the gates of the city where the leaders of the city met, where decisions were made, judgments were decreed for the people of the community. And Job is saying, I was a player in the city. And if at the gates of the city, when the issues of those in need came to bear and I didn't raise my hand, I didn't do something to exercise my considerable influence and leverage, then the arm that should have been raised ought to fall off. It ought to be taken out a socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. Listen, when you think Job, you think blameless. You think so honorable by way of behavior. This is a true worshiper that God brags about, bears witness to, with the enemy of everything holy and says, this is the man. This is the conduct of the man his charity, his integrity, he's blameless. Why? Because he fears me. And he cares for those who are in need of care. He's honorable when you're with him, and he's honorable when no one is with him. He's made a conviction covenant with his eyes of what he will see and do. And he says, if my hands have spots on them, dirt from sin or behavior that's dishonorable, then I should bear the consequences, because this is a truly religious man. It's not just outward behavior. It's the quality and the conduct of the life. Chapter 29, Job is actually rebuking Bildad, one of his supposed allies, He again affirms his uprightness, which God has already validated. And he says, by way of example, here's my testimony of the behavior of one God called blameless. This is what somebody does who God notes. Verse 11, chapter 29, whoever heard me spoke well of me. This is my testimony. And those who saw me commended me. Now, listen, this is what he says I have a good reputation. Christians ought to have a great reputation. True worshipers ought to have an honorable reputation. That's why elders ought to be blameless, not only at home, but in the community, because of the character and the conduct of their life. It's tragic, and don't underestimate the import or impact of the growing failure of people who say, I'm a worshiper and yet don't live as a worshiper. In my world, it's not uncommon for me to hear of failure, moral failure, inappropriate conduct. As it relates to those who stand in places like I stand today, we're all vulnerable to it. He that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. There's nobody who is immune or insulated from moral failure or non-Christian behavior. But do not estimate or underestimate rather, the power of injury and loss that comes to the people that watch us, children who follow us if we don't live in a way that validates the claims that come from us. Job is saying, my testimony was commendable by those who watched my life. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, my words. Remember we talked last week about bridling your tongue. Bridle means to turn it and restrain it. Direct it in a path in which it should go. And the people who talk about me ought to be able to say he's honorable with his words. That's what Job is saying. And those who saw me commended me. And then he gives reasons, verse 12, because. Why was I commended? Why did the world around me... Validate me because I rescued the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to assist him. The fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made, I made the widow's heart, look at this, sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I was a provider. I was a defender. I was an impact player for those, listen to me, that couldn't help themselves. Turn back now to James chapter 1. we're going to finish up this chapter today. Highlights. (laughs) Yeah, rather than teaching this section and using Job as an illustration, I wanted to begin with an illustration and then validate the necessity of that life you just heard described. verse 16 of chapter 1, and I'm going to highlight some words. Remember James? Somebody tell me, what's the theme of James? How to be a Christian. Not how to become a Christian, but how to live like a real Christian ought to live. James is real Christianity. James is the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. James is the validating evidence that what I say, my profession of faith, is validated as genuine and real. James is a series of descriptions, behaviors, that are meant to define how a Christian lives, how they deal with difficulty, how they receive the Word of God, how they pursue it, how they deal with temptation... But there's a propensity in all of us, verse 16 highlights it, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, with regard to the behavior that is required of followers, with regard to the challenges of life and your desire to live it as a Christian, do not be deceived, Verse 22, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive or delude themselves. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, which is where we were last week, and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. Self-deception, this man's religion is worthless. So here in the very first chapter, the conduct of a real Christian is they deal with difficulty successfully and differently than somebody who doesn't know Christ. They not only pursue the truth, they are committed to living it out. They're doers, not just hearers. They've been changed by the word of God, the word of truth, and they are ever and daily changing by that truth. And they are walking a real worship walk. They have a real religion defined by how they bridle their tongue, how they manage their words, how they restrain and redirect by what they say in categories that align with the truth that God prescribes about what this little member, which is so powerful, ought to be directed toward and what it ought not be involved in. And we listed out ten of those. My walk is reflected in my talk. And if I have no talk that reveals a worship walk, I'm a deceiver of myself. Because real Christians walk their talk. They also, verse 27, not deception, not invalid religion, Verse 27, but pure, and undefiled religion. Pure means it has no contaminants. It's clean. It has nothing in it, toxic. Nothing to deface it. It's undefiled, like the blood of Christ. No blemish no imperfection, nothing added. It's pure, it's undefiled, and religion is the word for true worshiper, God-fearer, somebody that truly respects and regards God. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Just a reminder, this is a personal thing with God. It's not just the God, the one and only God, but this is the God who is our Father, and the Father who is our God is the one who, when we come before Him, assesses true religion, the kind that He accepts as pure. God seeks those who will worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. And if you're going before God, what he would assess as acceptable, as pure, unblemished, attractive, and desirable is characterized by these things, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Two garments, charity, helping those who can't help themselves, being an ally for those God cares about, visiting those who are vulnerable and helping the helpless. Garment number one, charity. Garment number two, and keeping is a present tense verb, keeping yourself unspotted. You're vigilant and alert to avoid contamination that that stains your character, dishonors you, and therefore dishonors the one that you worship. So let's talk just briefly, and again, we're doing some highlights, with regard to the two key categories. And here's how you measure yourself. Just a reminder, look at chapter 2, verse 12. So speak, this is one of the things James says, we're not there yet, but we'll get there. So speak and so act, talking to real Christians, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. There is an assessment that will be made, it's the law of liberty, the law of God, the words of God, it will be the measuring stick that defines whether your conduct was pleasing or displeasing, blameless or blamed, pure or impure pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is when you're examined, looks like this. I help the helpless. Now, the word visit, viso, is the word Latin word for visit. It means to assess by visiting, by showing up, and evaluating. It's a uh, Greek word which means you scope it out. It's literally the word scopia. You visit the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan, you show up, you scope it out, you use your eyes, and then there's a prefix right in the front of it. Episcopia means you look at it intently. You're not just driving by, you're pulling over, you're knocking on the door, you're checking in, first of all, you're going, second of all, you're assessing, third of all, the Hebrewism of this word means you do something to meet the needs that you see. I'm not just showing up, oh boy, that's bad. Look at chapter 2. I hate that for you. It's not that attitude. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith and he has no works, can that faith save him? Implication is no, it can't because it's not valid or real. It's a claim without the reality. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. Now, this is not just orphans and widows. This is any brother or sister. But the idea is that they're in need. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? The answer to that question is there's no spiritual use for that and there's no practical use for that because visiting the vulnerable widows and orphans has to do with not only paying attention, being informed, but being engaged in a way that helps to meet that need because real religion is engaged in meeting needs Real religion was used at this time. The term real religion was used of someone in classical Greek who would visit the sick and they would behave as a doctor would behave, not dispensing medicine, but help and support. Someone who cared. Someone who entered in. As I said, the Latin word viso, from which visit comes, means to look steadfastly at someone, intently. It's to ask the questions. It's to acquire understanding. And then it's the conviction and the decision listen, to do something. And it involves widows, people who have lost their husband or care provider. Remember, widows could be someone who's alone, vulnerable, divorce, death, distance. They're alone. They need care, they need provision. Orphans, obvious, have no parent, have no caregiver, I'm vulnerable. And pure religion and undefiled religion says, I will help those who are most vulnerable and in need. So here's a question today. You're going to be measured on this, so am I. First of all, how many visits have you made? Do you know any? Second of all, do you know what the need is of those that you know? Third of all, how actively involved are you? Because the verbs are present tense. This is pure and undefiled religion. Listen, the word visit means this is a habit of my life. It's not a spasm. Hey, I went to church today. Harry talked about widows and orphans. I better get after it. Man, I got to get going. So you, you do what a lot of us do. Sometimes what Harry does. You get convicted, and you make an adjustment, and that is a season or a time or an event or a circumstance. Let me tell you what real Christians do. They pay attention to those who need help. They're proactively pursuing with interest to look at what the need is. It's not just the needy holding up in their hands and saying, I need food. I need shelter. I'm in a pickle. I can't help myself. This is Christians being alert and aware because they have an appetite and they have an attitude which says, you matter to God. He is the defender of the defenseless and you matter to me because I'm a worshiper of God and I represent God. The world knows God because they see God in me. This is the idea that I will pursue proactively as a pattern of living to see needs, to ensure care is given, to make it such that God's concerns are my concerns. Listen to Psalm 68, 5. God says of God, I'm a father to the fatherless. I am a defender of widows. Is God in His holy dwelling? Exodus 22:22 22, 22. and I'm God serious about this because he says Exodus 22:22 22, 22. do not take advantage of a widow and an orphan don't exploit them if you do and they cry out to me I will certainly hear their cry my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless Is there any confusion about how serious God is about that? Deuteronomy 10 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien. That's somebody, that's immigrants. That's somebody coming through with no home, no space. They don't have provision giving him food and clothing. Now listen, I didn't write this little letter, but I'm reporting to you its implication. The kind of worship that God calls pure, the kind of worship that he says is worthy of me, is the one that makes it as a habit and practice to represent God to those who need help from God and have no helper. Now, the word distress has to do with heavy and severe. It it means really weighty. It's, It's not like, hey, I don't have what I'd like to have. It's I don't have what I need. And I'm pressed. I'm burdened. This is hurtful. And I need somebody to help me. And God's people who are truly God-fearing are helpers who pursue providing that kind of aid. A couple of thoughts. How do you do this? What What do you think about I just borrowed some principles from the Old Testament and one pattern in the New. I'm going to call this, how do you do that directions or directives? This is biblical... Perspective, principle, and practice. How was it done? How should it be done? Here's some ideas for you. So you say, okay, I get it. I'm not paying attention. First of all, I need to be informed. And this is over a year and a half now, or at least a long time ago, we talked about this much more specifically. But what should you be thinking about as a regular pattern? Number one, you need to know who has need. Number two, you ought to take the extra. Consider taking the extra you have to help meet that need. Listen to the way it was done in Deuteronomy 24. When you are harvesting in your field, this is direction from heaven through Moses. When you're harvesting in your field, God says, and you overlook a sheaf. In other words, you didn't pick it up and put it on the wagon. Do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. In other words, don't pick them clean. In other words, take what's ripe, leave what's unripe on the branch, leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. You know how it works, right? I grew up in South Jersey. It's the Garden State. First job, pick peaches. 25 cents for one of these little baskets. Every basket I filled was a quarter. (laughs) Tells you how long ago this was. Like, who would do that for a quarter? I did it for a quarter. What did you put? pick and put in the basket, what the farmer wanted was the peaches that weren't quite ripe. They weren't green and hard. They were just getting that nice rosy flavor or look. They were yellow. They were starting, they were on the edge of being just right. And those are the only peaches you pick. And then there was this guy, when you brought your basket up to the wagon, he would assess whether you had picked what the farmer wanted. And if not, he would dump it out, and guess what you got to do? Work for two baskets for a quarter. And there was a lot of peaches left on the trees because they weren't ready for harvest. In my community, not working for the farmers, but... Being friends with the farmers' children when those workers would go through, either people like me who needed a summer job, or workers, migrant workers who would come up to do the harvesting and the picking. After they went through, guess what the neighbors got to do? They got to go through and pick ripe fruit for free. And I'm telling you, a tree ripened peach is better than a Harry picked it before it was ready peach. A tree ripened apple is the, I mean, you just, it's different. That's what is to be left. Some of the best that wasn't ready for those who need what otherwise they wouldn't have. So you have extras you have things that you bought thinking you would use it. You have things that you acquired because you thought you needed it. But you're not using it, and you don't need it. And you need to find a way to take the extra and invest the extra so those who don't have, have what they need. The second principle is you need to be a regular giver of your income. This is Deuteronomy 14, 20. 8 and 29. This is just pattern. It's principle. So take the extra, invest the extras. At the end of every three years, so every third year, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town. So 10% of all of the return goes into storage so that the Levites, those are the Leaders of God who are responsible for the worship at the temple or the tabernacle who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the aliens and the fathers and the widow who live in your towns may come and eat, listen to this, and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Not just extra giving but regular giving a percentage of what you take in is a pool of resource that is to be invested so that those who don't have are satisfied. Now, listen to the kicker in both cases. And God says, you do that, I'll bless you. Whatever you're giving, whatever you're sharing, Whatever you're investing, 10% of your income, not to the church, not to grace, not to a missionary, to those in need of food and clothing. You're an investor, and you invest like that, I'll bless your life and return of your harvest. And so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Do you hear the word all? Everything you put your hand to. It was true then, and I believe it to be true today. You have a guidance in First Timothy chapter 5 as to who should do it. Let me just give you a couple of highlights. Give proper recognition. This is verse 3 of chapter 5, 1 Timothy. And by the way, this is to be the work of the church for the church. That's what 1 Timothy 5 is about, conduct in the church. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Verse 4, 1 Timothy 5. So the first line of defense is the family. For people that are really in need, the family ought to display true religion by caring for their family. The widow who is really in need, verse 5, and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. So this is the attitude of the woman that the church is to step up. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives, which is a way of saying she's saved, not saved rather, she's unregenerate. She's dead. She's in the church, but she's living for things other than the things of God. Verse 7, And give people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family. He has, listen to this, denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, how can you be worse than an unbeliever? Because the believer should know better. The believer has the Spirit of God to help him do better. I'm motivated, transformed by the Holy Spirit, and ought to live like I am as a true worshiper who cares for people in need, and if it's in my house or in my church, it's the first order of business. That's the big idea. It is a demonstration of true faith, and it is a ministry to God for the glory of God. Now listen, we don't have time to teach it today, but Acts chapter 6. In the early church, you had widows who were going without. You had widows complaining because they weren't being provided for, and in the daily distribution of food... There was complaint by Grecian Jews who weren't in kind of the cultural household of the conversion of the church, and most of them were Hebrews, and they were complaining that the Hebrew widows were getting the best care. And so the Grecian widows complained, converts to Christ, Grecian Jewish women, and the twelve, the leaders of the church, they got together. You remember what they did? They said, listen, we as the leaders of the church... Are going to focus and devote ourselves on our primary responsibility, and that is to devote ourselves to prayer and the teaching of the Word. But we are going to find some of the best people possible, one of which was Stephen, who was martyred for the gospel. Stephen, who was doing wonderful works for the glory of God. Stephen, who preached before the enemies of God. Stephen was the leader of a group of deacons, if you will, who were responsible to make sure that the care of those widows, those ones who weren't being provided for, were cared for. And the net effect of that was not only the demonstration of this is important, this is a responsibility for the church through the church, but listen to what happened as a consequence. So they they put these seven men in charge, And Stephen's an example of sizable leadership and priority. And verse 7, Acts 6 says, So the word, the net effect, the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to faith. And I just thought it would be worth mentioning when God's people, true worshipers, worship through helping the helpless, visiting the vulnerable, it has an impact on the community around them so that the church grows because it sees the heart of God validated in the hearts of God's people. We ought to be the most caring, the most concerned, and the most sacrificial for the needs of those who are the most vulnerable. It is the evidence of our Christianity. Now, let me just touch on this last category purity. So, what do real Christians do? They display charity as a lifestyle. They visit the vulnerable, they help the helpless, and they stay unstained in the world. They keep themselves unspotted. Unspotted from the world means there's no marks, there's no blemishes, there's no injuries as a result of being exposed to and involved with the world. Unstained, you keep yourself, that is a present tense verb, like you're in constant guard, you're paying attention, you're not paranoid, but you're alert to the potential that you could be spotted, like Job was spotted, with his hands, with his heart, with regard to your involvement with the things of the world world let's talk world for just a minute most of you know this but this is first this first john chapter 2 the world has to do with a system it's the word cosmos it's not just the cosmos of creation it's a organized order that's not just physical it's also spiritual 1 John 5:19 says this is what Christians know. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is the god of this system. He's the prince of the power of the air. The system is the worldly system, the order of things that highlights the things of the world. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 that highlights three things the world system involves the desire of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of life. First John 2 says the things that are in the world are characterized by three key categories. Desire of the eyes has to do with material acquisition. I'm a materialist. I like stuff. I'm chasing stuff, and that's my desire. That's the epithumia, the appetite that drives me. I want to have things. I want to enjoy things. I'm motivated by the desire of the eyes. And the world is a system that promotes among us an appetite for more. The latest, the best. How many wealth books are there? How many blogs and YouTube videos are there about increasing your wealth? The driver of advertising is to make me realize that the car I just bought this year, by the way, they're coming out with a new one in 2022. Okay, so I got the old one, which means I will hear advertisements telling me what's wrong with the one I just got and why I need the one that's improved and better. That's the way the system works. It always is designed to promote The desire to acquire more, the desire of what I see I've got to have, because what I have is not enough. And the world system is designed, to nobody's surprise, to motivate me to want more, to acquire more, to have more. You know, my house, not big enough. Hey, I'm going to sell. I'm going to flip. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to move up the chain. I need more square footage. I mean, need more stuff. That's how the system works. And James is saying, don't get spotted or stained by that appetite to have more. I've got to have more. Category number two, desire for the flesh. That has to do with carnal gratification, physical satisfaction. This is sexual. This is any kind of gratification of the flesh. Certainly nobody needs to say our culture is not saturated with stimuli that say, I need to satisfy me with more of what I don't have physically, sexually, actually. Third category has to do with the pride of life. This is personal elevation. So I I see it this way. Material acquisition, category number one of the world system. Category number two, carnal gratification. Me, satisfying me through physical means and physical gratification. And then thirdly, the pride of life, the promotion of personal elevation. This is selling a lifestyle. This is promoting. This is the pride that promotes, I got to catch up. I've got to keep up. I've got to make up for where I am to get where I need to go. This is somebody has what I don't have, and I aspire to more. Their office is bigger than mine. Their positions are more privileged than mine. Their nameplate is bigger. Their office is more centrally located. They have more prerogatives and privileges. Their house is bigger than mine. I want more because I've got to keep up so that you think something of me. So that I think something of myself. And what we are taught here is the Christian, the true Christian, says, Oh, I get that. And I'm going to keep myself from being stained by that. I'm not going to chase the things of the flesh, they don't satisfy. I'm not going to aim at acquiring more because there's always more to acquire. And I'm not trying to keep up with the Joneses or anybody else. Because pure and undefiled religion is not focused on anything that comes from the world. It is focused on pleasing God and living honorably before God. Four things to do to keep yourself unstained. Number one. You avoid the world and the things that are in the world. You stay away from it. This is the Proverbs 5 principle. The immoral man who got in trouble, he went near the door of her house. Stay away from it. If you know potential worldly trouble is housed in that place or that activity, guess what you do? No, I'm not going there. I have no idea why Christians ought to go to Vegas. Vegas. I know the food might be good and hotels might be cheap, but danger is there. I had people in my church in Birmingham go to Mardi Gras. I don't know why they would do that. There are certain places you don't go. there's certain things you don't expose yourself to because there's danger. There's spotting that goes on. Listen, when I was driving my car across the country, brand new car, all that storm front went through. It had tornadic winds and hail. Anybody want to drive a new car into a hailstorm? Me neither. So you find a hotel in St. Louis with an underground garage. Do you know what you do? You pay for an underground garage. You don't get to park outside for free. You pay somebody to park in the underground garage. You know what? I paid my $30 a night. You say, why would you do that? Because I don't want any hail dings on my new car. I want my car to be undented, not unspotted. The argument is this if you value it, you'll protect it, you'll avoid it. And one of the realities about immorality is it's predatory. I tell seminary students all the time you don't have to be looking for trouble, trouble's looking for you. The immoral woman of Proverbs chapter 7, she goes out to meet him. She said, I came out here looking for you. Immorality is proactive and predatory. And when it comes chasing you, like Potiphar's wife chasing Joseph in Genesis 29, you (laughs) run. You avoid it, and if you get in the neighborhood of it, you run from it. And three, if you get dirty, deal with it. I want to show you one passage in closing. Second Corinthians chapter 7. I've got a thick section to cover tonight. I'm doing First Peter chapter 1, 13 through 16. Be holy for I am holy, that section. And yesterday when I was preparing for that, I ran into this. Reminder and challenge 2nd Corinthians chapter 7 I know it's in my Bible listen the world will make you dirty those things will make you dirty and they'll spot your hands and spot your heart it'll dent your spirit you avoid it you run from it thirdly if you get damaged or dirty, you deal with it. Look at verse 1, chapter 7. Now, what precedes it in chapter 6 are some promises. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, and it's a reference to God's promise that if you will separate yourself from unholy living, impure things, an inappropriate relationship, with the world, the things of the world, idolatrous things, immoral things. You separate yourself. He says, I will dwell in you, I will walk among you, I will be your God, you'll be my people. You'll enjoy intimate relationship with me, you'll enjoy intimate fellowship with me. I will be your provider and your protector. Verse 16. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean, what is stained and dirty from the world. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. Verse 18, the consequence, or at the end of 17, and I will welcome you. That's an invitation to come in for rich relationship. I'll be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters To me, says the Lord, in other words, we'll have this unique and intimate, I promise you. I promise you, if you'll stay away from that, you will enjoy unrivaled blessing, intimacy, provision, and protection. You'll be a welcomed child of mine. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, look at verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement. You know what defilement is? All of the dirt that you accumulate in an unholy world. When you give into it, when you get exposed to it, when you're injured by it. Cornerstone Christians, real Christians, they deal with it. They cleanse themselves. It's an aorist verb, which means they do it urgently and they do it now. It's an active voice, which means they do it. How do you cleanse yourself? You recognize that you've been soiled. You recognize and respond by saying, I get it. I repent of it. I renounce it. And I ask you, God, as I confess it, to cleanse me of it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? forgive us our sins, and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our part of the cleansing is the confessing and the identifying and the recognizing. And he said, listen, I promise you, I promise you that if you will keep yourself for me holy." I will be a father and a God, a provider, an intimate companion with you. You will be mine. I will be yours. But you need to cleanse yourself from everything that defiles you. And then the last part of this verse says, and the participle that modifies that main verb, when you're doing that, something's happening. The result is you're perfecting holiness in your heart because you, watch it, Fear the Lord. You regard God as God. And if you regard me as God, you're a true worshiper. And true worshipers stay away from it. True worshipers run from it. And true worshipers, when they get soiled by it, deal with it. That's how God says real believers live. And real believers enjoy a relationship with God that is priceless and precious. If you want it, live the life that validates you have life and live the life that allows God to bless your life. Christian, charity matters and purity matters. Father, thank you for the time today. Thank you for the reminder that is a pattern of life, pure and undefiled religion is the product of keeping ourselves unstained and providing help for those who are helpless and most vulnerable. Calibrate our heart. Help us to measure by the measuring stick, not by how we're doing compared to some other church or some other person, but how we're to do according to your prescription. So grant us grace to that end in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you.